Hey, everybody out there. Welcome back to another episode of Fold the Mustard, where we talk about all things hospitality and food with leaders in the industry. Obviously, this is another episode of uh, the quarantine version of Fold the Mustard. So even though so many of us are stuck at home, there's still plenty of hospitality and food happening. Uh, and today we've got some really exciting guests. I'm your host, Mark Serkin, founder of Dineable. Uh, today we're going to hear from two really accomplished food industry professionals uh, who come from the food lab at Drexel University, which is actually where I went to college. So first we have Chef Rachel Sherman. She's an accomplished pastry chef, a chocolatier, a Culinary Institute of America graduate. She brought her talents to Drexel to help coordinate all the innovative efforts coming out of the Drexel Food Lab. And we also have Chef John Deutsch. Uh, he has his doctorate in culinary arts and food science. He's a tenured professor in the Drexel Hospitality Program, and he created the Food Lab, which he runs with Rachel's help. Uh, he's also written a bunch of books, and Moonlight's doing some catering and events as well. So John and Rachel, thank you so much for joining us today. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Uh, and just to start off, can you maybe just share a bit, uh, each of you, about your background and what you do now through the Food Lab? Sure. Um, I, my background, I've been in the hospitality industry for about 10 years. I've worked in both front and back of the house, primarily in pastry. And I've been lucky enough to be able to travel all over the country to work as a cake decorator, chocolatier, and pastry chef. Um, I've been able to live in New York, Maine, and California before moving here to work with John. That's awesome. So I, I just had this image pop into my head of, you know, the baking shows and the, the bakers traveling all over for these competitions. Have you ever done anything like that? I have not done any of those. It's not really, uh, I think I'm a little too nervous for something like that. <laughs> Maybe one day. Maybe one day. <laughs> and John, how about you? I'm a professor in the Department of Food and Hospitality Management and I have a courtesy appointment in nutrition. And um, the work I do is um, called culinology or a research chef. And it's, it sits at the intersection of culinary arts and food science. So it's very focused on uh, product development and culinary innovation. It's a, it's a part of the industry that a lot of folks don't know about, you know, because um, it's a little bit behind, behind closed doors. Um, and a few years ago with a, a former student who then became a colleague, uh, Ali Zeitz, uh, we started something called the Drexel Food Lab, which is a, a product development and, and culinary innovation lab that gets students working on real world projects um, for industry, nonprofit, um, government. And they're all focused on good food products. And, and good is a very broad umbrella, but it means some aspect of sustainability, nutrition, or um, access in everything we do. There's, there's so many interesting developments coming out of the, the food lab that, that you've shared with me before. I'm, I'm excited to, he to hear more about them. I think you just taught me a new word that I hadn't heard before, culinology, that's probably, as you said, happens behind closed doors. Other people haven't heard of it. So, John, what drove you to, to a career in hospitality, and how did you end up coming to Drexel? Uh, I've been cooking since I was um, 14 professionally, um, summer camps, and I worked for a, a specialty pasta maker and, and just kind of, it was my after school job and my summer job um, for, for as long as I could be working. Um, it was very focused on um, going to culinary school. I'm also a Culinary Institute of America alum uh, from quite a few years before Rachel. 
Um, and uh, I brokered a deal with my parents when I when I went to school, which was they they would support my going to culinary school um, as long as I got what they what they said was a real college degree at some point. <laughs> so um, my the real college I chose was Drexel. Uh, so I'm I'm not only a, a professor at Drexel, I'm also an alumnus. And the reason I chose it in my very, uh, you, you know, holier than thou, know-it-all um, young adulthood was because they had a bachelor's degree in culinary arts and science, which we still have today. And I said, well, fine, I'm going to get my bachelor's degree, but I'm going to do it in culinary so I don't have to learn a new field. Um, so I ended up actually switching to hospitality, but um, went to Drexel as an undergrad, um, worked in... Uh, in the industry, and then also um, taught uh, my first teaching job at the City University of New York. Uh, I was there for 12 years uh, and, you know, um, earned my, my doctorate at, at NYU in the food studies, nutrition food studies and public health department um, while in New York. And then uh, Drexel recruited me back in 2013, um, back to my alma mater. So it's, uh, it's been a good move and uh, a lot of fun. Right. Your, your reasoning for choosing Drexel is much better than mine. I chose Drexel because it wasn't as cold as Rochester, New York, where I also got into RIT. So I just went with weather. Not a bad decision. No, not too bad. It was really cold out there. Rachel, how about you? What, what brought you to Drexel and, and how'd you get started in the industry? Um, I feel like I've always been in the industry in some way. I feel like even when I was a kid, I was taking the cooking classes at my synagogue or my high school, where I was lucky enough that that was even offered. Uh, and then when I was in undergrad, I went for art education, but I found myself baking for roommates every day. And I was sitting there reading cookbooks and not my art books. And I feel like that was when I really knew I needed to make a change. And I connected with John through a friend of mine who also happens to be a Drexel Food Lab client. Um, he started sending me research and development jobs and one day I was like, do you have anything in higher ed? And he said there was an opening at the food lab. So I jumped at it. Awesome. It's, it's interesting. So many people in hospitality industry and in culinary get started really young. And it's, it seems to really be a, such a passion-driven career. As opposed to, you know, you don't see accountants who just got into accounting because they did it when they were 14. Yeah. It, it is a passion-driven career. And, and it's one of those fields that... Um, it makes no rational sense. You know, one of the things we I've, I've written about is um, the skill set for a chef is, is vast, right? You have to have great interpersonal skills, great physical skills, endurance. Um, you know, it, it's long hours, it's nights and weekends. It's like, there's, these are highly skilled people who could be successful in a million uh, career fields and and they want to be a chef and and you can't you can't sort of break someone of that you can't talk them out of it you know you may do what Rachel and I have done and sort of tweak your your lifestyle to find a little corner of the industry that you that you prefer but it for for most of us it makes no rational sense to do this we could we could have better hours and an easier time and and more money doing a host of other things but um it's just it's just the thing to do yeah well you know food, food is love and all that and you can always taste it when somebody's really there because they care about it yeah uh so back to the food lab uh 
can you share a little bit more about what types of businesses you work with through the food lab and how you work with them? Sure. We, we work with all sorts of um, people from startups through multinationals on the business side. Um, some of our clients startups are um, like Zoom Foods, uh, which makes a great tahini product. St. Lucifer Spice. We have student startups um, like Reveal, which is a upcycled tea made from avocado um, seeds. We had a conversation today with another um, startup client called Matriarch Foods, which makes an upcycled um, vegetable broth from, from scraps. And we work with, um, you know, fairly large, um, but still regional food companies, um, companies like Nature Soy, Amoroso, some work with Dietz and Watson um, through, you know, major, the big major multinational food companies um, like Hershey, um, uh, Wakefern, uh, Bimbo Bakeries USA has been a, a long, a long time client of ours. Um, and we also do work with um, nonprofits, groups like um, Rebel Ventures and Food Recovery Network and government. So we, we have a grant from the CDC, uh, not related to any sort of uh, current events, but um, on uh, health promotion. And it's called the Sodium Reduction in Communities Program. And we're a, a contractor with the city of Philadelphia on that, on that grant. So um, a really wide variety of, of partners, um, but what they all have in common is they're focused on um, doing some good food product development and um, coming to us with projects that um, can engage our students um, who, are, who are anxious to get some real world experience on these projects. That's great. So, so much great variety there. Do the uh, businesses you partner with, do they come to you or do you... Do you and Rachel both go out there and, and try to solicit uh, these partnerships? How, how does somebody get started with you? Um, so far, it's been more a matter of picking up the phone. Um, we haven't done a lot of marketing. Uh, it's been word of mouth. Um, one of our, our best sources of recruitment is people move around from one company to the other for new opportunities and, and sort of bring us along for the ride. So, for example, we, we did a lot of work at Hershey some years ago, and um, our, our clients at Hershey have moved to Aramark and uh, Bimbo, and so we now have projects at Aramark and Bimbo. So that's, that's been our best recruitment source, has been um, clients who've enjoyed working with us. Well, word of mouth is a wonderful thing. Yep. Uh, so what are you both seeing uh, coming through the lab now as, as far as what's happening with coronavirus? Are there new innovations that are coming through the food lab directly related to, to you know, the brave new world, we, world we've got? Uh, Rachel, you want to start on this one? Yeah, I feel that I haven't seen anything directly related other than us trying to provide support for figuring out ways to get food to people and helping with connections in that regard, uh, especially in the food industry with everyone being laid off. How do we get them hooked up with distributors who want to give them uh, meals? Yeah, we had some input into a big event last week with U.S. Foods um, at Craft Hall um, where they, um, you know, U.S. Foods has a warehouse um, full of food that is not selling at the volume that it did. 
um, and we have hospitality workers out of work. So as Rachel said, just kind of thinking through how to how to get that food to people who need it in an efficient way. Sure. Um, and we're also um, having some conversations um, about doing doing that on a on a steadier, more ongoing basis. Um, because as you would imagine, Phil Abundance is, and, and other food security, uh, food hunger relief organizations are just totally overwhelmed right now with requests. And um, a big part of their model has typically been surplus food from warehouses and supermarkets and so on. And if you've been to the supermarket, you know that the, the issue is not uh, a surplus right now, it's, it's uh, a, a lack of products. So, um, we've been really focused on that. Uh, that. That's great and obviously important work right now. One of the things I, I think I saw it in my Drexel alumni email distribution yesterday, there's an alum who I think built a company last year based on food risk redistribution of either rescued products or something like that that's coming right through the school. Are you guys involved with that? Yeah, his name's Evan Ehlers. He has a a nonprofit or actually a for-profit a company uh, called sharing excess um, which um, came out of our entrepreneurship school so uh, he's not our student he wasn't in, in culinary but um, we provided some some guidance along the way and some connections and uh, it's great to see him doing so well awesome that's great so John, you were just talking kind of about supply chain and grocery. Uh, that's one of the things I wanted to talk about today. So obviously on everybody's mind is uh, how kind of the whole chain is upset. Uh, grocery staff are getting sick and dying. It's tough to find the products people need, um, whether it's small grocery stores or big supermarkets, even industrial farms, wholesalers, whatever. Kind of seems like chaos right now. Are you able to make any sense of what's going on, and and maybe some of the ways that people might be able to help or businesses might be able to help? Yeah, I mean it's it's definitely chaotic um, as people adjust, and and one of the things I'm seeing is this this is going longer than people thought it might, and and we're looking into the future a lot more. So, you know, I mean, think back to just a month ago it was like, well, I think things will be shut down for like the second half of March and we'll, we'll kind of re reconvene in, in April. Right. Then it became, you know, uh, the famous uh, Easter Sunday uh, rebirth that never happened. Right. Mm -hmm. And now we're talking about end of May and I'm seeing things canceled for various parts of the summer and, and still a big question about the fall. So I think, I think um and the food industry you know we're not we're not selling widgets you know there are there are crops in the ground that won't be ready for harvest for a matter of months and so it's really hard to predict when things are changing week by week uh it's really hard to um to know where the demand is going to be and this is this is really unprecedented and and if you know if you think about the 1918 flu pandemic as the the last one of these you know our our food system is is not the same food system so um a combination of of hoarding um unexpected demand you know as you saw for things like home baking supplies um uh, a mismatch between um, supply chains. So, you know, ex extra product destined for restaurants like fresh fish, uh, 
they can't transition easily to retail um, has been has been an interesting problem. And and there are some people who are doing better than others and being responsive to that. So um, there are some farms that serve restaurants that have uh, Rachel and I have been buying from that that are doing. Um, home delivery and, and uh, I bought my seafood from a restaurant seafood supplier and you know, it's as a, as or more affordable than the retail fish counter and, and better quality typically. Um, but you have to have the kind of patience and, and skills to navigate that system. There's no, there's really no roadmap for this. Yeah. It's, it's uh, I find it kind of interesting and, and kind of exciting that, that a lot of these wholesalers are now, going direct to consumer. Uh, Rachel, you and I were emailing a little bit about that. How does, what, what do you think about that? And do you, do you think that gives kind of home cooks a, a, a look at more of the, the products that you might see on the table in the restaurant? Is that giving home cooks a different angle? Yeah, uh, I think it is. I really love that the wholesalers have opened up to the public for this. I think the vegetable boxes I've seen uh, people put together, and the access to some of the harder to find ingredients that people get excited about seeing them in restaurants has been really exciting for people that are stuck at home and want something to look forward to. It's definitely, uh, I think, changing. seems like it's going to be changing the, the way people get groceries, probably permanently. And it may be uh, that we're looking at one of these inflection points where maybe the, the whole supermarket model we have right now is going to end up going away uh, if, if this becomes more permanent. And John, you had mentioned to me or reminded me that 50 or 100 years ago, people didn't really go to supermarkets and they, they kind of didn't exist. And you'd call your neighborhood grocer and give them the list and then go down the street and pick up your goods at the end of the day. Is that kind of, do you think we're going to go back to that model? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think we've somewhat been on that model already through um, Amazon Fresh and, um, you know, various online shopping um, platforms. Um, but yeah, it's it's interesting how the pendulum shifts. So yeah, it used to be that the grocer would sort of be behind the counter and you would say, you know, I need some flour and they would scoop it out of the barrel and weigh it for you and, and tie it up. Everything was in bulk. And, you know, that's where like um, the expression bottom of the barrel comes from. Like, I don't I don't want the bottom of the barrel open a new one of whatever, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. um, and um, the supermarket was this great innovation, right, where um, if you think about it, we're doing all the work, right? All, uh, they're opening their doors to us but we're picking everything we're deciding we're running around with the cart and, and even self checking out. So they, you know, a grocer may disagree, but the, the labor has, has really decreased and, and they've put that burden on the consumers over the years. Uh, and now if we're, if we're doing Instacart or something like that, we're putting the labor back on someone else to say, um, you select everything for me and, and just deliver it. Um, what's really challenging in that environment is the marketing. Cause if you, if you think I, I typically go to the supermarket with a list of, I don't know, eight to 10 items, but my cart inevitably has 25 or 30 when I get to the checkout. And that's because you see things, you're stimulated visually, you, you know, there's 
very intentional marketing across categories and, and things like that and end caps and promotions. And that's much harder to translate to the online environment, right? So, so grocers are going to have to think really creatively about their promotions. If you're just looking at a screen and you can't, you can't smell the uh, in-store sampling or you, you can't, you know, literally trip over a, an end cap with some, uh, with some display. Sure. Yeah, that's a really good point. I'm, I'm wondering about the, the comment you made about kind of the, the labor. Is it, is it really that it takes less labor for the supermarket to do the work or is it just kind of a shift in the labor? Because, in, you know, maybe instead of packing the products, they just shifted to stocking shelves and keeping the store clean and answering customer questions. Sure. Yeah, I think that's a good point. One of the things I've been wondering about is if it's just a matter of shifting now and all of that labor shifts back to order fulfillment. Uh, yeah, yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. Thinking more about kind of the, the wholesaler piece of this, do you think that wholesalers are going to start coming to the food lab and, and start asking for help and guidance to, to better distribute their products when, when they're thinking about getting straight to consumer? Yeah, I mean, I, it's really mostly been more manufacturers who are um, saying kind of the the interface happens between the consumers um, in directly or indirectly saying what they want and the manufacturers working to meet that need. What I would say is wholesalers are looking to differentiate themselves a lot more. And so where we've had some success is um, in exposing them to new products from some of these startup and smaller manufacturers um, because if you think about it, um, the vast majority of, um, if you think about like a broadline restaurant distributor, the vast majority of their product are, is interchangeable, right? You know, you're going to have prime beef and five other vendors are going to have prime beef. And so you're really competing on cost, but where you can get some of these really unique specialty products in, um, I think there's some there's some opportunity and i think what we're seeing now is is wholesalers are being a lot more creative and um entrepreneurial in terms of how they can reach um their former customers or former end users in a restaurant setting you know directly um whether that's you know driving up a, to a loading dock at the produce terminal and picking up cases of something or having like a an emergency sort of family pack that I saw some people offering with you know chicken breasts and toilet paper and pasta and rice and you know basically enough enough to keep you going affordably uh if you don't have access to a supermarket right now or or for good reason or hesitant to to enter one sure. uh, I was kind of expecting to see restaurants start offering grocery packages uh, and I saw that a little bit, but it seemed to kind of peter out. And now they're just kind of doing the limited delivery menus, the ones that stayed open. Uh, yeah, there are some doing that that I've seen, but it's not been, I wouldn't say it's a big trend. Yeah, yeah. The, probably the most unique one I saw was, uh, I think it was Iron Hill that started selling their excess toilet paper. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> and I saw uh, Sidecar Bar had a, uh, if you take out, uh, I don't know if they're still doing it, but if you, if you take out from them, you could get a free roll of toilet paper with every order. <laughs> That's funny. I guess, you know, there's no customers coming in, so 
they don't need it in the bathrooms and the, that's, in right. The that's right it makes sense so shifting a little bit i know uh, you, you mentioned earlier there's a, a lot of work that you guys are doing through the food lab on sustainability uh you know re reduction of food waste do you want to talk a little bit about what you've been doing there and and the different products maybe you've been involved with yeah, John mentioned a couple before. Uh, before I started working there, he had done work with Reveal, which works with the avocado seeds to make tea, and Matriarch, which uses the excess um, peels and vegetable, otherwise would have been waste, to make a base for vegetable broth. We've been heavily involved with the Upcycled Food Association, um, which is a new industry association that's focused on um, uh, upcycled food products, which are products that use ingredients in their somehow in their formulation that otherwise would have been wasted. So byproducts of other other foods. So we mentioned Matriarch, which does the vegetable broth. Um, so if you think about like those little carrots, the baby carrots that are like those football shaped carrots, mm. you know, those are not actually baby carrots. It surprises some consumers to know. Um, and they're they're milled that way and there's all sorts of scraps and there's uh, when you buy the little diced onions at the front of the supermarket um, all those odd shapes and peels and and trim um, is being used in this uh, broth concentrate so that's that's an example of upcycling um, there's a company called regrained that takes spent grain from beer brewing and uh, makes a flour out of it um, that is because the a lot of the starch is extracted to brew the beer, it results in a flour that's very high protein and high fiber. Um, so it's it's not only uh, tasty but actually um, higher in in a lot of those nutrients that that are um, desirable. So um, yeah, a lot of our work is focused on on helping manufacturers of upcycled products uh, do their work successfully. We had a, a grant from the Clinial Foundation um, to support that work. And one of the exciting things is we're seeing more interest from uh, major manufacturers and multinationals in upcycling as well. That's great. It's uh, I love the creativity of a lot of these upcycled products. I'd never heard of the avocado seed tea. I, I, what, what does that taste like? I can't even imagine. It's, I think it's delicious. It, uh, avocado seeds are very antioxidant rich. Um, it's technically not a tea. It has no tea in it, but it's, you know, it's like a, I guess it would be a tea saying. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's, um, it kind of has the color of tea. Um, a little bit of bitterness similar to tea, but it's not overpowering um and flavor so lightly sweet and and with different flavors nice what was that rachel i said uh, almost like kombucha in my opinion oh okay is it fermented in some way no but uh i feel like the bitterness that john mentioned it just to me reminds me a little bit of that got it i'll have to can i get it in the store is it is it well right now i guess that's tough obviously but uh yeah, has it been think, on store shelves i think it's uh nearly on the market yeah it, it was founded by um, a couple of our um, graduate program alums, um, Sheetal Bahirat, who uh, graduated with their master's in culinary arts and science, and Zuri Masood, who graduated with her master's in food science, and they're, uh, they're running this company called Reveal. Cool, cool. 
is that, would you say that's one of the most unique projects you've worked on or do you have others in mind that would be really unique? That's a pretty unique one because it's taking a food that really wasn't ever used as a food um, and um, at least commercially and uh, starting a whole business around it. Yeah. Rachel, what do you think? Yeah, I agree. I'm so impressed with the lengths that they went to get that product on the market. I mean, they even went and got it uh, grass certified, which is not easy. And what is grass certification? Uh, generally recognized as safe. Ah, okay. Got it. Cool. That's great. So here's a million dollar question. What would you both be doing right now if there was no pandemic? Well, at Friday at 2.40, I would probably be in the office. But if the time wasn't an issue, probably hiking or spending time with friends, nice. giving everyone I love a hug. <laughs> I think we all need a little of that right now. John, what do you think? Uh, I do miss uh, our occasional happy hours. Um, so I would, I would very much like to be having a cocktail this afternoon at, uh, in person uh, with a great bartender. Um, but short of that, I, I, um, I'd be doing what we're doing. I think we've been um, pretty good about uh, moving our work uh, to remote. We have students cooking at home uh, and sending documents back and forth and photos and um, even food sample. I worked on a food sample today for a client and I'll be shipping it to her house tomorrow. So, I mean, we're, it's sort of business as usual, um, just uh, without the, the need to worry about what to wear. <laughs> yeah, I think everybody's forgetting what dressing, dressing up looks like. Yeah, my uh, dry cleaning bill is definitely way down. <laughs> uh, so kind of on the, on the heels of that, what, what would you say, what would you both say is the most rewarding part of your jobs? For me, is seeing the students create new ideas. I feel like I'm always impressed with their suggestions and creativity, even if it's something I think seems like a simple project or an answer, they always surprise me. I would say for me, it's it's seeing students become colleagues um, over the years. So, you know, I, I just spoke with one of our alums who um, is hiring now, you know, and so like to go from uh, seeing her in, in our lab working on projects just a couple of years ago to now saying, here's what I'm looking for in a, in a junior colleague, if you know anyone, like what, what a thrill to have that kind of conversation. Yeah, that's awesome. Fantastic. We're getting close to wrapping up here. Uh, I, right now, I love to hear from people about how they're thinking about what's happening in the world now and, and what you want the world to look like when hopefully we start getting back to normal. Uh, you know, I always think that every obstacle is an opportunity. So Rachel, what do you, what one or two things do you want kind of the, the world to look like and want to see changed when we start coming out of all this? I want people to support local businesses and locally produced food. I feel like it's something that people know of but don't necessarily think through all the time. Uh, but I think I've seen a lot more of it since this has happened and I hope that that continues on after this. Uh, also to see what a difference a few months makes in terms of air quality and pollution and that I think that's been one of the few benefits of this whole pandemic being a worldwide um, issue. And I hope people acknowledge 
the smaller workers in the food supply chain and how important they are. And I hope that that acknowledgement doesn't go away. Yeah, totally agree with all those. John, how about you? Yeah, I think um, one of the things that this has prompted is, is appreciation for a lot of the things we took for granted, um, eating together, you know, going, going into one of those, those local businesses, um, you know, sitting at a bar, sitting at a restaurant, going into a bookstore. Um, those were simple things that, that we just kind of got used to. And, and I think, uh, sometimes I forget, you know, uh, I'll, I'll watch, um, TV at night and I'll, I have this habit, usually around, I don't know, 1130 or so of thinking, oh boy, what do I have tomorrow? I should probably go to bed. And then I realize, oh, it's the same thing I did yesterday. You know, it's like sitting at my computer and doing Zoom calls and writing and doing all that stuff. And, and um, so I hope when we get back to the new normal, whatever that looks like, um, we really cherish those um, interpersonal face-to-face -face opportunities that, that have been maybe a little bit too easy to replace thanks to technology. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that as well. Uh, so just as we wrap up here uh, for the Food Lab and for both of you in general, what sort of people or businesses are you looking to connect with and how can everyone get in touch with you? Sure, um, we, we are open to um, people who need us. Um, we frankly turn down more opportunities than we take on. Um, it's not a matter of um, lack of interest, but lack of expertise in certain areas or you know, things that are very specialized or we're just too busy. Um, but we're always open to conversations and, and if we can help people, we will or we'll we, we very rarely leave people totally hanging. If, if we can't help, uh, we'll refer you to who can. I have a number of colleagues at Drexel who are really phenomenal, and then, of course, at other universities and, and private industry. Uh, and the best way to reach out is by email, um, jdeutsch at drexel.edu, or um, on our website, if you just Google Drexel Food Lab, it's probably the easiest way, uh, rather than the, the long URL. Great, and I'll, uh, your, the spelling of your name may be a little difficult, so I'll make sure it's in the, in the show notes for people also. Sounds good. And Rachel, is, is that pretty similar for you, uh, other than your email address, obviously? Yeah, yeah, I feel like that pretty much covers it. I'm excited to see what happens after this and the types of companies that get started. Great, well, thank you both so much for joining us today. Uh, Rachel and John, it's been an absolute pleasure to chat with you. and. Uh, Again, everybody out there, if you want to learn more about the Drexel Food Lab, check them out on the web uh, and you can get in touch with Rachel and John. Uh, and thank you, everybody out there for listening to another episode of Hold the Mustard. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Hold the Mustard. We've got a ton of great episodes in store for you. If you or anyone you know is interested in being a guest or wants to learn more about Dynable, email me anytime at mark at dynable.com. That's M-A-R-K at Dynable, D-I-N-E-A-B-L-E.com. Dynable offers technology and services to help event planners optimize opportunities for guest personalization while empowering operators to stay efficient on food cost and waste. Learn more at Dynable.com.